Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church, and happy Mother's Day. My name is Zach, one of the guys here on staff. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 25, Romans 16, 25, and we are finishing what seems to be a 30-year-long study through the book of Romans today. So uh, next week, we'll begin a new series. We're going to go to the Old Testament, and we're going to do the book of Jonah. So we encourage you to come to that. If you think the story of Jonah is about how if you don't do evangelism, God's going to eat you with a fish. That is not what it's about. So please, uh, please come and learn what it's really about uh, beginning next week. Now, as we turn to uh, the last section of Romans, I want to mention something to you. So, the best day in my entire life was my wedding day, okay? I'd say it was the day that I got saved, but I don't know when that day was. There was kind of a six-month period where my heart started changing for the, the things of the gospel. And so, the best day in my memory was my wedding day because it was a perfect day. So I got up that morning, I'd spent the night at a friend's house, and I said, okay, it's time to get ready. And if there was ever a time where I tried to make sure that I looked great, it was that day. I plastered down every stray hair with gel. I shaved my face. I don't know if you know this or not, but I haven't always had this beard. I wasn't like born with this or something, come out with a full-grown beard. Rather, this is something I grew later, and so I made sure that I got every possible whisker, every rough spot. I looked perfect on that. So then I go outside to get into my car to go to the church where we're getting married, and a guy comes up to me in the parking lot, and he goes, hey, man, are you doing anything? And I was like, and then I waited to see what he said. He goes, because I really need help changing a tire. And I looked at him, and I said, nope, I'm going to get married. And I just left. It's the only time in my life where someone has asked for help, and I've just told them no and didn't feel bad about it, okay? This is my special day. You can deal with your own problems, Mr. Tire Guy. And so I hopped in the car and drove up to the church. And what you do before you get married is you basically have to wait in this room for like six hours. It's the weirdest thing. Girls, they take a long time to get ready. As a guy, you basically show up ready. And so you're just there, you know, goofing around with your friends and telling jokes. And my sweet bride had gotten some food and drink for me that she had waiting in the groom's room. And it was chips and salsa from Chewy's. Amen. Because I'm a salty guy. Okay? I like candy, but I don't like sweets. I don't do cake and pie and these kind of things. So there was chips and salsa from Chewy's and a monster energy drink because I love energy drinks. Now, I couldn't eat or drink either of those because I'm getting married. So the whole day, I'm like, I'm going to throw up, I'm going to throw up, I'm going to throw up. Not because of Katie. She's great, but because of me. Okay? And then it finally comes time to get married, and I'm standing there at the front of the church, and my groomsmen are with me, and, and you know, the people start to come down the aisle. So my parents come down the aisle, my dad comes down the aisle and gives me a big, loud high five in front of everybody, which is awesome. And then it comes time to see the bride. And guys, she was looking amazing. I almost said a bad word, okay? I didn't. I'm a man of the cloth, whatever that means. But there was this bad word like in my mouth and her beauty almost pushed it out, okay? But then we got to say our vows and we had this great ceremony. We did something that you might have never seen in a wedding ceremony. We did a foot washing. So the Bible will say that a wedding is like the gospel. How Jesus pursues his bride, the church, is how a husband is to pursue his wife. And so we had a time where I had this bowl of water and I knelt down and washed my wife's feet and then dried them with my tuxedo jacket as an act of condescension because Christ condescends by remaining God yet taking on humanity at the incarnation. And then it was great. We laughed and danced and every, all our friends were there and our family was there and it was excellent. Now... When we were finally done with the wedding, here's what we did not do. Hey, that was a lot of fun to get married. Give each other a high five and just leave, okay? Because the wedding is the beginning of your life together. It's the beginning of your marriage. It's not the end, okay? It's just getting started. Now, here's why I tell you this. 
You might be thinking, as we finish the book of Romans, that you're then done with Romans. We're done. We've studied it. We know it. Let's move on to the next thing. What I'm telling you is as we finish Romans, it's kind of like a wedding. Okay? This is the beginning of your life. We've learned about it. Now, for the rest of your life, you're going to have to come back to Romans to memorize it, to study it, to be encouraged in the gospel, to talk about the truths that are contained in the book of Romans, to walk in righteousness, etc. So this is not the end. This is the wedding. This is the beginning. This is the big crescendo we've been working up towards. And so know that just because we're done with this series does not mean we are ever done with the book of Romans. Now, these three verses today form one big run-on incomplete sentence, okay? We talked about this last week. The Apostle Paul is the author of Romans, but he used a scribe, a guy named Tertius, and you can tell because Romans is written like someone would talk. So Paul interrupts himself, he rabbit trails, and here he gives a big run-on incomplete sentence. I often talk this way. I'll be in a staff meeting with the other guys, and I'll be like, "Uh, what do you guys think that we should, uh..." and they'll just look at me. And that's it. And they're like, what's wrong with you, ADD? Finish your sentence. We should what? And so that's kind of what's going on uh, here in Romans, though there is still a lot of uh, good theological meat uh, on this passage. So let's pray, and then we will get into verse 25. Father, we come before you only through Christ and by the power of the Spirit and confess that we have no right to approach your throne without knowing uh, Christ. And so I just pray a blessing. I thank you for Romans. I thank you for this series. I thank you for this text. I pray that you would bless now as we teach and read your scriptures and that you would guide us. We want to ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 25a. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Let's break down this verse. I want you to look at the first few words here, okay? It says, now to him. The hymn there is God. This is a transition point in the book of Romans. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is what is known as a doxology, okay? A doxology is a word of praise. Doxa in Greek means glory, and a logos is a word. So a doxology is a word of glory, a word of praise. And so what Paul is doing is he's praising God. That's how he begins with this section. You'll see a constant pattern in Romans that goes something like this. We'll learn some theology, then that causes us to worship God, then that causes us to live a transformed life. That's the flow of Christian sanctification. You learn a truth about God that makes you love Him more and burst into worship. That then produces a changed life. So we saw that already in Romans, where for the first 11 chapters, he gives us theology. He then has a doxology, a word of worship to God, and then we're given practical application through the rest of the book. Here, he's going to burst forth into praise, and the implication is that we then live these things out. Now, I want to do a little philosophy with you, so bear with me for a second. There's a philosopher, a guy that was out of Oxford named J.L. Austin, and what he wrote about was something called performative language, performative utterances. That sounds boring. What does that mean? Well, most of our language as humans is describing something. My name is Zach. Here's a music stand. We're in a building. It's Mother's Day. Most of our language is describing things. However, there are times where we use our words not just to describe things, but to actually change reality, to actually make things happen. I'll give you a few examples. If I'm an officiant at a wedding and I say, I now pronounce you husband and wife, I'm not describing something. I'm not saying you were already husband and wife. I'm making you married with my words. It's crazy. The same thing happens if we like christen a ship. Right? I christen this the USS Mermaid or whatever, and you break a champagne bottle on it, you're doing something with your words. When you make a promise, you've bound yourself now in reality just with your words. When a judge says uh, that I find you to be guilty, 
you're being condemned by his words that there are times where our words don't just describe things, but that they do things, they change things, okay? Now bear with me. How much more is that true with God and his words? How much more is that true with the scriptures? The reason I tell you this is the Bible is not just a big book of facts. Now wait, it is a big book of facts. It is truth, okay? It is a big book of facts, period. But it's not only a big book of facts. It is written not just to inform you, but to change you. When you read in the Psalms and King David burst forth into praise, you're not supposed to say, I cognitively recognize and memorize that King David is bursting forth into praise. You're supposed to burst forth into praise. When you read Lamentations and you see how sad the author of Lamentations is, you're not supposed to say, I hereby recognize that Lamentations is sad. It's supposed to produce lament in your heart. I say all of that to say this text this morning is not meant for you to just take it and go home and say, I hereby recognize that Paul praises God. It's meant to produce worship in your heart. It's meant to produce praise in your heart to God. He begins now to him, meaning this blessing is now to God. Look at this next phrase here. Who is able to strengthen you? Who's able to strengthen you, okay? What kind of strength is this talking about? I need to make fun of something real quick, but if you actually like what I'm about to make fun of, I'm just joking, okay? When I grew up, there was something called the power team. Does everybody know what this is? They were basically a group of roided up guys that would come to your church, rip a phone book in half, and be like, that's resurrection power, right? I can do all things through Christ, and then they'd bench press 500 pounds. That's not the kind of strength the Bible's talking about. By the way, God used those people. I even know people in this church that got saved at power team things, so I'm glad that God uses us despite our best attempts to mess it up. But that's not the kind of strength that the Bible's talking about. The kind of strength the Bible's talking about is that God's giving you the strength to resist temptations, to resist trials, and remain true to the faith. Praise be to God who strengthens you. How does he strengthen you? Look at the next phrase. According to my gospel. According to my gospel. Now look at me. This is important. The gospel is not just something lost people need to get saved. The gospel is something you need as a Christian. What is the gospel? Christianity believes a lot of different doctrines. The gospel is the central thing we believe. It's this, that mankind is born sinful and evil because we have rebelled against God and everything has become ruined. But through Christ, God is fixing everything that's broken. He does so through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is the gospel. Christianity is not about you being a good person. It's about you knowing you're a bad person, but someone coming to save you because you're bad, okay? So what the Bible just said, though, is that we are not only saved, but we are strengthened through the gospel. You never graduate beyond the gospel. You must preach the gospel to yourself. If you have a problem in your marriage, you need the gospel. If you have a problem with anxiety and depression, you need the gospel. This isn't just the thing that saves you, although it does do that. It is the thing that sanctifies you. Why are we teaching on this passage on Mother's Day? Because what you need to know most as a mom is that if you want to be a good mom, you need to know Jesus. You need to love Jesus. You need to rest in the grace of Jesus. That's what you need. That's what you need. That's how we're strengthened. So I'd encourage you to set a little timer on your phone that goes off once a day and spend just a minute. Spend two minutes reminding yourself of the truths of the gospel. Nobody talks to you more than you do. Okay? I don't mean out loud like a crazy person. I mean in your mind. Nobody talks to you more than you do. What are you telling yourself all day? Take time each day to pause and renew your mind with the truth of the gospel. Let that alarm go off and think to yourself, I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm accepted. 
I'm 100% righteous in Christ. He died for my sins. God does not see my sins anymore. God loves me. He will never leave or forsake me. Christ's kingdom is pushing back what is evil, and one day everything that is evil will become untrue. Remind yourself of those things, and I promise you that it will start to have an impact in your practical life. Now look at the next phrase. According to my gospel, he says, and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Those are not different things, okay? Those are not different things. Those are the same thing. His gospel is the preaching. The word of there, if you want to make a note in your Bible, means about. The preaching about Jesus Christ. Those things are, uh, they go together, okay? The gospel is the message about Jesus. It's this. We've come up with this definition several times in Romans, but I want to show it to you here one more time. This is the gospel, okay? This is a long definition. If you want this, email me and I'll send it to you. But I want you to see what the gospel is, how it's accomplished, and why God does it. So what is it? How's it accomplished and why God does it? Look at this. The gospel is the good news that the God of Israel is putting the sin-scarred world back to rights by reestablishing his rule and reign, what the Bible calls his kingdom, over the world. That's what the gospel is. How's it accomplished? Through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and coronation of his eternal son, Jesus the Messiah, and by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Why does God save us through the gospel? With the purpose of stomping out all that is evil and redeeming sinful humanity by grace unto the glory of the triune God. That is the gospel, okay? That is what Christianity is all about. Christianity is all about a king who made a kingdom and everything was good and mankind rebelled against God and everything became bad and broken. Instead of just damning everyone though, God sends the king to redeem us, to live righteously on our behalf, to live the life that we should have lived and to take our punishment on death row, die for our sins in an, uh, in an atoning sacrifice, and he's resurrected showing he is king of the world, he is the Messiah, and one day he is coming back. That is the message you need to be strengthened. So Paul starts off by saying, glory to God who strengthens us to be faithful through the gospel, which is the message about Jesus. That's what Paul is saying so far here. Look at verse 25b, second half of 25 into 26a. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Now, this is kind of a weird passage, so let me explain what's going on here. In verse 25, do you see the phrase according to right there at the front, according to? Everything that's about to be said here modifies the idea of gospel, okay? So Paul says, glory to God who strengthens you through the gospel, and now he's still talking about the idea of gospel, okay? And he's going to say some things about the gospel. Here's what he says first. It's the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, what does that mean? But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings. Okay, so let me uh, back up and, and we'll do a little theology. The Apostle Paul, several times in the New Testament, will use this word mystery. It's the Greek word mysterion. Okay, it's this word mystery. Here's what a mystery is. It's something God already knows. It's something that's already true in heaven, but that then God reveals to mankind. It's something God already knows. God's already planned. He already has a brilliant plan in place. And then it is finally revealed to humanity. And that's the unveiling of this mystery. Specifically in Paul, the mystery here has to do with two things. One, how God's going to unite all people in Christ, Jew and Gentile. And two, how God is going to save the world through sending a suffering Messiah. Okay? Now, you're not really excited about this word, so I want to give you an example of why you should be excited. So, my kids, I have two kids. One is three and one is one. My kids love Chuck E. Cheese, okay? They love Chuck E. Cheese. Now, I just want to say some things as an adult. I don't love Chuck E. Cheese, 
When you go to Chuck E. Cheese as an adult, it is a super different experience than you had as a kid. As soon as I walk into Chuck E. Cheese, everything is visibly covered in grease, and I think to myself, we're all going to get a stomach bug. That's my first thought. I see kids like running around, like licking the joystick and doing all these other kinds of things, and I think, why are we here? Maybe they'll have a redeeming quality. Maybe they'll have good food. Nope. Maybe they'll have a mascot that's not a rat. They have a six-foot rat that walks around and hugs slash terrifies children. You stay away from all rats. You always stay away from rats trying to hug you. You always stay away from six-foot-long rats, okay? The motto of Chuck E. Cheese should be Chuck E. Cheese. Eat a piece of pizza near a sneezing child. That's basically all you do. I don't like it. My kids, though, lose their mind over it, okay? So let's say I'm planning on taking them to Chuck E. Cheese. It's a Monday. It's a Monday. And I'm planning when Friday rolls around, I'm going to take them to Chuck E. Cheese. It's a mystery. I already know it. It's going to happen. I've already planned it. But they have no idea yet, okay? They have no idea yet. And then Friday afternoon rolls around, and I call the kids to me, and I say, guess what, kids? We're going to Chuck E. Cheese. (gasps) They start screaming and ripping out their hair and catching their toys on fire and flipping tables. They are so excited because this message of salvation, this message of joy and fun and pizza and all these kind of things is now revealed to them, and they see, Dad is so great. Dad is so great because he gives us Chuck E. Cheese. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say the new heavens and new earth is probably a bit better than Chuck E. Cheese, but that's the idea here. The idea is that though mankind has rebelled against God and God could just stomp us, instead, he shows up in Christ and says, eternal life, forgiveness, mercy. Doesn't matter how many times you've messed up. Doesn't matter how many times you've failed. You cannot outsend the cross of Christ. There's mercy for you. And that is the mystery Paul is talking about being revealed. It's an amazing thing, okay? It's revealed not only in the coming of Christ, but the, but the Bible here is going to say that it was already hinted at in the Old Testament. That what it mean, that's what it means by the prophetic writings, okay? So there's a famous phrase in theology when we talk about the Old and the New Testament, and it's this, that the Old Testament is revealed in the New, while the New Testament is concealed in the Old. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> Let's say we turned out all the lights in here. Please don't do that, uh, people on the soundboard. We turned out all the lights in here, and we blacked out the windows. We put tape around the edges of the door. We covered up the exit signs, which is illegal, and we didn't allow you to pull out a phone or a flashlight. It was just pitch black in here, okay? Are there some things that you could still know? Yes. You would know you're sitting in a chair. You wouldn't know what color the chair was or how many chairs, but you would know you're sitting in a chair. You would know that there's other people in the room because you can hear them. You might even be able to recognize a few people by the sound of their voice. You would know that you're in a building, but you wouldn't know how high the ceiling is, okay? So there's some things you could know, but you wouldn't know everything with clarity. Now imagine that we turn the lights on. Did anything actually change in the room? No, the same number of chairs is here, the same number of people are here, etc. But now with the lights on, you can see the color of the chairs, you can count how many people there are, you can see how high the ceiling is, you can count the lights, whatever it might be. That's kind of like what's going on in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not that this mystery we know nothing about. In the Old Testament, there's all these promises of a Messiah and Gentiles flocking to Jerusalem and all these kind of things. But what the New Testament does is it turns the lights on. It turns the lights on. It was already there in the Old Testament. We just couldn't see it as clearly. With the coming of Christ, you have the lights turned on. And that's what that's talking about here. Now, look at the end of verse 26. It says that the gospel has been made known to all nations. Does that stress you out? 
Why do we send out missionaries? Why do we send out evangelists? Why do we plant churches if the gospel has gone to all nations? Here's what you need to understand. When Paul says that the gospel has gone to all nations, what he means is generally the gospel has gone out to Gentiles. It doesn't mean that there's no work for churches to do. Paul is, after all, planting churches that he hopes will make disciples. Rather, he's saying that this Jewish faith, which is completed in Christ, goes like access from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So you need to understand, in Paul's day, the gospel has gone to the known world. He's not lying when he says this. If it's the 1700s and I say this sentence, the United States has only 13 states. I've not lied because that's true when I'm writing that. You can't come back later and say, no, it doesn't have 50 states. Well, it didn't in the 1700s. And so what Paul is saying is that the gospel has gone to the known world. Why is that important? Because God is not just about redeeming Israel. The God of Israel is about redeeming the whole world, Jew and Gentile. Verse 26b, according to the command of God. So how does God make this known to all nations? According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Okay, what does that mean, the command of God? Here's what it means. It means that God sovereignly picked the time of when this mystery would be revealed in Christ. Okay, that the gospel would go to all nations because of the command of God, by the power of the command of God. Okay, now I want you to see a a particular word here because we're going to do a little theology together. It says, according to the command of the what God? Eternal. Eternal. Now, this is huge. The Bible though this isn't Paul's main point, just went out of its way to tell you a very big important theological point that you need to know about God, and it's this, that He is not like you, that He is not a creature. He is eternal. How do we know the gospel will be successful? How do we know that God will keep us saved? How do we know the gospel will go to all nations? Because it doesn't just come from some temporary or created God, it comes from the only God, the eternal God, okay? I want to show you a few verses. Psalm 92. Look at, the, look at the difference between you and God in these verses. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God can keep you existing for all eternity. That's what he does in new heavens and new earth or lake of fire. God keeps humans existing. God inherently has always existed. He goes infinite both ways. In fact, that's a bad way to say it because he's outside of time. God is everlasting to everlasting. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. You inhabit a house. God inhabits eternity. Those are different. Those are super different. Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place. God has always been God. God has always existed. Before there was anything in the universe, there was just God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity has always existed, and there was nothing else until God made it. He is the eternal God. Look at this next one, 1 Timothy 6, 16. And talking about God, who alone has immortality. Again, God can keep you existing, but you don't possess it inherently. God is the only being that inherently possesses immortality, okay? who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Listen to this next phrase. Whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Notice that this Bible, the Bible just said that no one has ever seen God, nor can you see God. All these encounters that people have with God in the Old Testament are typically a symbol. 
They don't actually see God. They don't actually see his essence. They see something that symbolizes him, whether it's an angel, like an angel of the Lord, whether it's a pillar of fire, smoky clouds, a burning bush. They do not directly see God. You cannot see God. Why? Because God is infinite. What does infinity look like? What does a trinity look like? God has no body. He is not physical. He is spirit. He's eternal. He's everywhere. Not only that, but you'll actually see this attribute of eternality applied directly to the Son and also by logical implication to the Spirit. Look at Revelation 22, 12-13. This is Jesus speaking. We know that because He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what He has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's a phrase applied to God elsewhere in Revelation. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, meaning before there was anything else, back in eternity, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is eternal. When you think of Jesus being God's Son, don't think of it like as your Son. My Son used to not exist. Jesus has always existed. He's God. He's the eternal Son of God. He is not a creature. Notice this text just said, everything that's been made has been made by Jesus. If anything has been made, it's been made by him. Therefore, he cannot be made. He's eternal. He is God. Okay? Colossians 1.17, speaking of Christ, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus, the eternal God, is actively holding all of us in existence all of the time. As Acts would say, in Him we live and move and have our being. You're not just dependent upon God for Him to give you food or for you to get a job or for you to get well if you're sick. You need God to keep you existing. That's how sovereign and how powerful God is. Now, here's why I say all of this. Here's why I say all of this, okay? It's, a, it's very simple but very profound. The reason you and I owe worship to God is simply this reason, because He's eternal and we're not. Why do we have to obey God? Why, why can't He tell us some of these things, but we also get to contribute and tell Him what we'd like to do? Why do we have to obey God? The answer is very simple. You are a creature, and He is creator. You are temporal. He is eternal. You are finite. He is infinite. God is a trinity. You are not a trinity. Okay? There is an infinite gap between you and God. That is why we're commanded to worship Him, because it's fitting. It's right. You should worship the thing that's the greatest. And guess what's the greatest? What's infinite. Okay? That is why we have to obey God. That is why Paul mentions this phrase here. How do we know that God will be successful in the gospel? Because He's not a creature. He's the eternal God. Okay? I don't know if you know what infinite means, but if you count to the number a trillion, you're no closer to infinity than when you began. God is qualitatively different than you, okay? Qualitatively different than you. You will find that many of the problems you have in your spiritual life is because you start thinking of God like He's some man on a cloud. You start reading human attributes onto God. People let you down, so you assume God will let you down. You can annoy people, so you think that you start to annoy God. Stop making God in your image. It doesn't work that way. God is the eternal God. Now, look at the end of verse 26. Why, what is God's purpose in all of this? It says to bring about the obedience of faith. That is the result of the gospel. The conduit is the command of God. That's how he gets it to go out to the nations. 
And the result is obedience. Okay? The Great Commission that Jesus gives his church is not go therefore and make shallow converts of all nations, getting them to pray a prayer so at least they can go to heaven when they die. That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission involves making full-blown disciples. Okay? It involves baptizing, and it involves, listen to this next one, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. The Great Commission involves calling the nations who've rebelled against God to lay down their arms, submit to King Jesus, and to be obedient. Acts 17, 30-31. The times of ignorance, that's the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was mainly focused on Israel. Yes, He's sovereign over the world, but the pagan nations just kind of did their own thing. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay? Last verse, verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. There is not a more fitting way to end the book of Romans than by giving God glory because of what's been done through Christ. That's how Paul's going to end the book of Romans, okay? Now, this is exciting. Paul is bursting forth into praise. I'll, I'll give you a little example. So, uh, I said I have two kids. We have been pregnant, therefore, twice. And, uh, and so, uh, every time that my wife's been pregnant, one of the things I love doing is I love getting to tell people that we're pregnant or she's pregnant. Some people rebuke you either way. You say, she's pregnant, and they say, you're both pregnant. I'm like, it's just, that's just like Doritos and stuff. That's not both of us or whatever. Other times I say we're pregnant. They're like, nope, only one of you is pregnant. Anyway, at some point when Katie and or I are pregnant, we get to tell people about that, okay? Now, one of the things that I like to do is I like to tease my sweet dear mother and make her think that we're pregnant at times when we're not, okay? So we will go out to dinner and I'll say, mom, we've got some exciting news. We're going to order the Awesome Blossom at uh, Chili's or whatever. And I just watch her face get excited and then crushed, okay? Mom, I have some news for you. Guess what? We're expecting to have a great time at Chuck E. Cheese on Friday. And I'll do things like that, okay? Because she gets excited. When you tell a guy that you're, you're expecting, the guys are like, cool, man. Talk to me about something else, okay? They don't care. But the women really care. So, so my, my wife, Katie, she has a friend named Carrie and she has the best expression anytime we tell her that we've been pregnant, okay? So we will go to her, and not, we, won't, we won't tease her. That's an act of love for my mother, by the way. It's Mother's Day. She's here. I love you, Mom. Um, so what, what, what Katie will do is she'll go to her friend Carrie, and she'll say, Carrie, we're pregnant. And at that moment, Carrie starts screaming, jumping up and down, kicking her legs back behind her like a cheerleader, jumping up and down, screaming and crying. She's jumping and she's crying and their kids are closing their ears and staring at her and wondering what's wrong with mom because there's this joy, there's this excitement. She can't contain it, okay? That is what you're supposed to see here at the end of Romans. It's supposed to produce this joy in you. Listen, if you are a Christian, you are completely forgiven. The eternal God is on your side and loves you and promises never to leave or forsake you. And when you die, there's resurrection and eternal bliss. That's worst case scenario for you if you're a Christian. Worst case scenario for you is that God is with you in this life and you have joy. And then you die and there is only eternal bliss with no more weeping, no more crying, no more pain. That is worst case scenario for you if you're a Christian. That should produce something in your heart to know everything is going to be okay. It will hurt now. 
You will go through pain. You will go through suffering this side of eternity. But God will be with you in that and then there's just eternal bliss. That should cause you to cry and jump up and down and scream because of the mercy of God. A few things in this verse. It calls God the only wise God. Now what does that mean? Doesn't Solomon have wisdom? Aren't others in the Bible said to have wisdom? Aren't we commanded in Proverbs to have wisdom? Here's the idea here. Only God is inherently wise. He can grant somebody to have wisdom. He can give it as a gift like he does to Solomon. But only God is inherently wise. Only God is inherently holy. Only God inherently exists. You and I didn't have to exist. God didn't have to create us. God necessarily exists. What God possesses inherently, he can give gifts to people, but they don't possess it inherently. It's how dependent we are on God. The same thing is true of God's holiness. Revelation 15.4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Aren't we holy? Doesn't the Bible say that we're saints, that we're holy? Yes, but we don't possess it intrinsically. Only God possesses it intrinsically. Now look again at verse 27. We're almost done. To the only wise God be what forevermore? Glory. If you've got your Bible, underline the word glory here. This is the purpose for which God does everything. Let me ask you an important theological question. What does God love more than anything else? Can you agree that's an important question? The perfect almighty being, what does he love more than anything else? Some people will say, humans, he loves us the most. If God loves you more than anything else, we should be worshiping you and so should God. We should worship whatever is most lovable. That's what we should worship. I would challenge to say that God does love us, but he does not love us the most. The thing that God loves the most is God. The thing that God loves the most is his glory. Now you might say, well, wait a second, Zach. If I loved myself the most and I wanted other people to love me, that would be selfish. Yes, it would be selfish for you as a human to do that because you're not worthy of that love. You're not worthy of being the highest thing. Again, stop thinking of God as a big man. Rather, it is fitting and it is right for God to love God the most. He's the most lovable thing. God loves the thing that should most be loved, which is the infinite God. That's what God does. Because God is out for his glory, as he should be, as we should be, that is why he does all things. The reason you have breath in your lungs today is for the glory of God. The reason humans were created is for the glory of God. The reason God makes beautiful sunsets all around the world every day is for the glory of God. The reason that there are galaxies turning and burning billions of light years away that we will never see, they exist simply for the glory of God. And what this text is saying is to God be the glory, not only for everything, but what he has done in saving people through Christ of all nations. Now, in ending Romans, I want you to see a few things, okay? First, I want you to realize in these three verses that we've just looked at, there are several words that are really summaries of different themes throughout Romans. We're going to put those on the screen. I want to show you a few of these. In verse 25, you have this idea of him who is able. We saw that throughout Romans. Only God can save. How do you go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God? You can't do anything. All you can do is beg God for mercy and he justifies you based upon faith in Christ. God is the one who is able. He is the one who elects. You don't, even, you don't elect yourself or something like that. It is God who is able to save. Verse 25 again strengthens you. We saw in the book of Romans sanctification. 
and how it's the Spirit who grows and preserves you. Not only does God save you, He keeps you saved. He grows you. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate you from the love of God, no created thing. That includes you, by the way. Well, I can separate myself from God's love. No, not if you're one, a created thing, and two, fit under the category of nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Verse 25, Paul here mentions my gospel. We've seen the gospel be a huge theme throughout the book of Romans. Justification by faith in Christ, the coming of the kingdom, repentance, and hope in the resurrection. We've seen that. Verse 25, Jesus Christ. Romans is all about Jesus. Romans is all about Jesus. That's why we're called Christ, Christ, Christians. We're not called good people-ians or go to churchians. We're called Christians. We're all about Christ. Verse 25, the revelation of the mystery. We saw that throughout Romans, God's plan to save people has been revealed in Christ. Verse 26, the prophetic writings. This was all in accordance with the Old Testament. Paul's gospel is not something new. It's how God has always worked. That's why he points back to Abraham being justified by faith and things like that. Verse 26, prophetic writings. It's all in accordance with the Old Testament. Verse 26, been made known to all nations. We've seen throughout Romans that there is this calling together of Jew and Gentile. You see that same phrase here. Verse 26 talks about the eternal God. That's the one who does the saving. Verse 27, the obedience of faith. Chapters 12 through 16 in Romans are all about holiness and obedience. In light of the gospel, we worship God, and then it produces a life change. Okay? We do not do good things to be accepted by God. We're accepted by God by faith in Christ alone, and that produces a life change whereby we do good things. Okay? And then verse 27, be glory forevermore. The purpose of God and salvation is the glory of the triune God. Now, I want to show you one more verse here. Romans 1, 1 through 7. Now, let me tell you why I'm putting this up there. The end of Romans is almost exactly like the beginning of Romans. It's what Jeff calls an inclusio. It's like these bookends. It's like these uh, parentheses around this section. Look at the similarities here in, uh, in Romans 1. Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We saw that, Paul's gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. We saw that. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, we saw that in this passage, the preaching of Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Same phrase that we've already been uh, kind of dealing with here in this text. For the sake of his name among all nations. We see that again including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You even see that uh, implicit Trinitarianism right there in that passage. Paul ends Romans the way he began Romans, by giving glory to God who saves through Christ those of all nations. Those of all nations. Now, in ending Romans, I want to I mention this. I want to mention how influential this book has been on certain people throughout church history, okay? The most influential thinker in Christianity outside of the Bible, and there is not a close second, his name is St. Augustine, Aurelius Augustinus, okay? He lived in the 300s and 400s, St. Augustine. Before he was this great Christian leader and theologian and all these kind of things, he was a heretic. He belonged to a cult called Manichaeanism, which believed that there's basically two gods, a good one and an evil one, and the evil one is the one that made everything because it's matter, and matter is yucky and gross and bad, okay? So he belongs to this cult. He also is involved in a lot of sexual immorality. 
St. Augustine loved the ladies. He had a kid out of wedlock. He's famous for praying, God, make me holy, but not yet. But not yet, okay? And so he's busy sleeping around, and he's busy being in a cult, and at the same time, he's brilliant. He's a rhetoric professor in Milan, has a great humanities education, and one day he's sitting down in a garden, as he describes it, and he's feeling overwhelmed with shame. You see, sin brings about shame. That's why Adam and Eve realized the shamefulness of their nakedness after eating the fruit. So he's sitting there in the garden, overwhelmed by shame, and he hears some kids playing, okay? Some kids playing nearby. They're running around or playing on the swing, doing what kids do, and they're singing this little song. You know how kids sing little songs like Ring Around the Rosie, which is actually a song about burning bodies during the bubonic plague? But anyway, that's something kids sing. So these kids are singing this little kid song, and in that song, he hears this phrase. He, he hears the phrase, uh, tole lege, tole lege, which means in Latin, take up and read, take up and read. So as these kids are playing, they're saying, tole lege, tole, and they're singing this little song, and Augustine thinks, that's a strange phrase for a kid's song. And he takes that to mean that he should take up and read the scriptures, and he opens a Bible to Romans. And it's in reading Romans that he is converted. He repents, turns from his sin, and becomes the greatest Christian theologian of all times. He defends the Trinity. He solves the problem of evil. He proves the existence of God. He is brilliant all through what God has done through converting him in Romans. John Wesley, the uh, founder of the Methodist Church. The Methodist Church was founded by two, Anglican, or, yeah, two Anglicans, John and Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was a famous hymn writer. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, for example, is one of the songs that he wrote. And uh, John Wesley was a minister for years and not converted. He would go and he would preach on all these things, but he himself was not a Christian. He talks about being terrified to die and having no assurance and not believing the things that he was saying and all those kind of things. And one day, he was in London in a church service, and the pastor started reading, wait for it, Martin Luther's preface to Luther's Romans commentary. And he was reading that from the stage. And Wesley said that it felt like his heart was strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and of death. And he becomes converted and becomes one of the greatest evangelists in church history. And then lastly, we'll end with Martin Luther, the spearhead of the Protestant Reformation, a feisty, anxious, condemned, morbidly introspective, beer-drinking German monk who hates God, he becomes a theology professor, studying theology even though he hates God. And in studying Romans, he has this theological breakthrough that one is saved not by doing their best. One is saved simply by faith in Christ. And he writes this. We're going to put it up on the screen. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would appease him. Therefore, I did not love a just, angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Look at this next part. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us, means sees us as righteous, through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate 
now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Church, what did you think of the book of Romans? Is that fun? Is that fun? Come back next week as we begin a new series in Jonah. If you're one of the guys helping pass out communion, if you would come to the front while we pray. Almighty God, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the book of Romans. I pray that we would never graduate beyond that, never graduate beyond the gospel, that we would come back to this book as a constant source of flowing water and nourishment for our souls. I pray that you would uh, guide us, that you would bring these things that we learn to our remembrance just throughout the week. I pray that if there is one here who does not know Jesus, one here who maybe this is the first time they've heard that they cannot save themselves, they cannot do anything, they cannot make you happy, that it's just simply entrusting Christ that they're saved, I pray that today would be the day that in their heart they would bow the knee, that they would ask Jesus to save them, to forgive them, that they would call him King and Lord and turn away from living as their own Lord, living as the one who gets to call the shots in their life and instead giving that to Jesus. I pray that you would be with them and encourage them. I pray for everyone who's already a Christian that's hurting. I pray that you would renew their mind with the truth of the gospel, that when they are stressed out to the max, they will remember that you're not stressed because you're infinite, you're impassable, You have joy in and of yourself. I pray that when they feel like they're never going to get out of this trouble, that they would know for all eternity they won't be in this trouble. That one day everything sad will be untrue. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.